0: From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Wellbeing, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information that help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host. Jim Purcell. Welcome to Returns on Well-Being. I'm Jim Purcell, and today we will be talking with Dr. Ron Gessel. Dr. Gessel is the Vice President of Consulting and Applied Research for IBM Watson Health. He holds a second position as Senior Scientist and Director for the Institute of Health and Productivity Studies at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Gessel has published over a hundred review articles, and book chapters and frequently presents at International Business and Scientific forums. Welcome to our podcast Dr. Gessel.
1: Well thank you Jim for inviting me and you can call me Ron. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Uh, very good. Um, Ron how does your work for Truven differ from what you do from Johns Hopkins?
1: You know in many ways actually it doesn't so I've, I've done this uh, amazing thing which is to combine the talents and resources from academia and link it back to the business world. Mm -hmm. So the the aim of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies, which I direct, uh, looks at ways of bringing real-world problems to academic researchers and smart people at Johns Hopkins, and at the same time uh, makes the academic community fully aware of the kinds of real-world challenges that businesses face and how do we combine this uh, set of uh, talents and resources and intelligence so they can do things that are going to benefit one another and that's really the foundation of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies I've done this collaboration work for about 15 years now uh, starting with Cornell University and moving to Emory University and now Johns Hopkins but it's always been this connection this partnership and collaboration between the business world, which is now IBM Watson Health, and an academic research center like Johns Hopkins.
0: It sounds like much of what you do is to evaluate workplace health promotion programs to determine returns on investment. Is that right?
1: It is. You know, workplace health promotion programs have evolved and have morphed. Uh, So it used to be Uh, pretty much wellness programs, the stuff that uh, employers put in place in the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s, uh, they have become uh, health and well-being programs, Mm -hmm. and more recently something called total worker health, which brings in uh, safety, occupational health and safety programs. But then, you know, it's expanded even further to bring in financial health and even spiritual health into these programs. Sure.
0: And I assume you define ROI, return on investment, as the provable reduction of coverage costs resulting from such programs compared to the cost of the programs. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, let me, let's spend a minute talking about ROI and something called VOI, which is value on investment. ROI, of right. course, is return on investment. And um, you know, over the years, corporate America and, and a lot of other organizations have moved from this notion of you've got to return money for my investment in workers' health and well-being. And, and I think that's for a very good reason. Um, mm-hmm. Traditionally, we've done a lot of research in this area, and we've published studies looking at return on investment. First of all, they're hard to do. they're You've got to have a lot of data, a lot of people, and they're time-consuming and expensive. But second of all, it turns out that uh, there are many other reasons why employers put these programs into place that are hard to quantify monetarily. Uh, Mm -hmm. and they include things like attraction and retention of top talent uh, engaging workers uh, in their day-to-day work uh, enhancing the company's reputation as caring for its workers so it's become a lot harder to quote-unquote establish an ROI for these programs and quite honestly in most of medicine we don't require an ROI so if if you have a headache and you take a Tylenol let's say you're not saying, well, what's my return on investment? So you take it a step further, and you have uh, open heart surgery. And you don't wait by your mailbox for that rebate check to come in the mail for all uh, for all the services that you receive from from the provider. So it's kind of a an unusual term, and uh, in many ways, it it requires the people in prevention and health promotion to abide by a higher standard than is usually applied to most of healthcare
0: true Um, and and yet this is the uh, territory in which you live Um, isn't it difficult to determine whether a wellness activity done say in 2015 caused a claim not to happen in 2017
1: well actually there's a whole science out there in the health services research community that uh, tries to deal with that issue so Mm -hmm. essentially what you need is good baseline data so Let's say, let's take an example that you just gave, which is uh, something, a program is started in 2015. You wanna have uh, at least three years of baseline data to see what the patterns are before the program is in place. Right. And essentially, project upward to see what would happen if you did nothing. And then, there you wanna compare people who are exposed to the program to those not exposed. Now, what mm-hmm. that means, there are two ways to do that. One is to look within the organization at people who are exposed to the program, and that may be people offered the program or at sites or departments, workplaces that have the program versus those that don't, or if there's a very high uh, participation in the program, you may go outside of the organization and actually go into normative databases, mm-hmm. like one we have called Market Scan, where you match the people up at the organization that has the program to people at another organization that don't have the program, and then again you continue looking at their patterns and if their utilization and cost patterns are different for those who are exposed to the program versus those not exposed the delta or the difference between those utilization and cost patterns is what defines savings
0: it it sounds tricky um i i know there is a term called confounders would you tell us a little bit about that please
1: right there's a lot of confounders so for example uh whether or not you go have a medical procedure done depends on a lot of stuff first of all it depends upon you know your your personality and and your upbringing and whether you think uh you know you ought to go see a doctor for something or not so there's a lot of internal kind of a dna of the person uh, in and of itself and and so the people who are participating in programs may be more health conscious they may be more wellness oriented they may be higher socioeconomic status, they may be more educated, they may have better jobs, more money. All those factors are confounders, not to mention the least of which, you know, things that are organizational in nature, like uh, the demand of the job, the stress of the job, whether your boss is a nice person or not a nice person, uh, the the workflow, the hours. So there there are literally thousands, I guess, of confounders. And so the way to address that in health services research is you find Comparison subjects. They're not called control. They're called Mm -hmm. comparison subjects that are as close as possible as the person you're trying to evaluate. And you match them up kind of like twins up front. So you match them on age and gender and education and race and job type and, and even in some cases their interest in improving their health. And then you track those populations over time. And that's the closest you can get To controlling for confounders. Right.
0: Uh, There is, I I assume, a huge self selection issue. I mean, for example, we all use the whole idea that people who take vitamins are healthier. Does that mean that they are healthier because of the vitamins, or are they the type of people that, because they take vitamins, keep themselves healthier? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that is absolutely right. And that's true for uh, all epidemiological. Research and, and, uh, you know, even down to smoking research, you know, smoking causing lung cancer, where uh, scientists, you know, for for many years obviously said that's a correlation that's cause, not causation. These things just happen to be traveling uh, on parallel tracks. So you can take that to its absurd uh, conclusion of, you know, nothing causes anything at all unless you do a randomized trial and right. follow people for 50 years. Um, the reality is that, yes, indeed, their health conscious people are more likely to participate in health promoting activities whether or not you have a program in place. Absolutely true. The question is whether there is an incremental value of these programs, whether they go above and beyond what you would normally be doing, and that's how these various methods are employed to try to match people on as many things as possible, including motivation.
0: So what I'm hearing you say is there's a huge common sense factor here.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and quite honestly, from an employer standpoint, you uh, you know, if you can get a vast number of people and, and hopefully even a majority of the population or even better participating in health promoting programs where they're going to learn how to eat properly, where they're going to learn how to exercise, how to de-stress, how to go to for preventive screenings uh, and all those things that do contribute to your health, the employer is going to be happy because people are doing the kinds of things uh, that are going to improve their performance and productivity, but at the same time save money in terms of mm-hmm. unnecessary healthcare use.
0: Right. So uh, I'm an employer, and how do I determine whether I'm getting a positive ROI from my workplace program? Uh, isn't that very expensive? Uh, is it realistic?
1: Well, if if you really want to go through the trouble of doing a, a large claims analysis, and we've done this for many, many companies. We continue to do it for many companies like like Johnson & Johnson and mm-hmm. Prudential and uh general electric company and motorola and dow chemical we we do these large big deal studies where we actually go and look at the claims data uh that's fine and and companies do want to do that uh on the other hand you know we have developed modeling programs that essentially say if you can move the needle on population health if you can get people uh, to not be obese to quit smoking to be uh, less stressed less depressed and lower their blood pressure and glucose levels this is how much money you would be saving in terms of direct and indirect costs. Mm-hmm. So direct costs are medical costs, indirect things like absenteeism and presenteeism. And for many companies, that kind of modeling, which is based on empirical data, uh, based on studies we've done, but that kind of modeling is good enough. In other words, yeah. Yeah. I will get an ROI if I can improve the health and well-being of my my workers. That makes sense. Tell me approximately what that ROI is, and then you don't have to do a big expensive claims analysis. Right. Uh,
0: What is HERO?
1: HERO is an acronym. It stands for Health Enhancement Research Organization. Uh, it's been around for over 20 years uh, founded in the 1990s actually I'm one of the original uh, board right. members of hero and and I'm still on the board. Actually. I'm the chairman of the board You're the uh, chair. But, uh, right s- Soon I'm going to be relinquishing that title to to another the vice chair um, but it's been around for many years and essentially was developed and uh, established to hear the employers voice In health and well-being programs and wellness programs i think they call them uh enhanced medical or enhanced enhanced health programs i forget Mm -hmm. what the original title was but right now it is uh, health and well-being directed not just employees but also the communities in which those employees uh, are are situated and Mm -hmm. what we do is we we uh, look at research we, we provide networking opportunities where people can share their information, best practices, and what's the latest. And it's also a community of like-minded people, both at, at the provider level as well as the uh, employer, uh, uh, customer level, that can share ideas and kind of stimulate new thinking.
0: Right. Now, you've, you've talked a bit about ROI, which you know, we've, we've really defined as specifically – trying to reduce healthcare coverage costs, and we've also talked about other types of VOIs or ROIs, however you want to put it, such as uh, uh, increased uh, engagement and productivity at work, uh, reduced absenteeism and reduced turnover, higher morale, and that sort of thing. Um, tell me, This seems so self-evident. Why aren't more employers proceeding down the strategic approach to employee well-being?
1: Well, actually, some of the latest research says that employers do report that they have these wellness well-being programs in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the latest Kaiser Family Foundation survey released in 2016, and then other surveys, including one we published this year with Nielsen, shows that roughly four out of five employers, uh, 80% plus, say they have a wellness program. But if you dig a little bit deeper and say, well, what does that mean? You know, Mm -hmm. what do you do in this wellness program? It turns out that a relatively small proportion, in our estimate, somewhere around 13% have a comprehensive health wellness program. So what that means is they've got something that they call a wellness program. That may be a website or that may be annual health assessments or biometric screening or a flu, uh, flu shot program, but that's really not, a, as you point out, a strategic uh, initiative that's that's designed to improve the health and well-being of workers. That takes a
0: lot more effort. Right. And you wrote an article in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine in 2014 entitled, Do Workplace Health Promotion Programs Work? And I think you made the observation that all too many do not work. Um did you say what percentage of such programs you think don't work in your opinion?
1: Well, at that time, the latest statistics from the government that looked at uh, how many employers, and this is 50 plus employees had comprehensive health promotion Mm -hmm. programs. The estimate was 7% had them. So 93% did not have them. Uh, Again, the research we published this year uh, probably doubles that number to about 13 or so percent uh, that have a comprehensive program. So, Again, I think, you know, you've got elements and some people have called it random acts of wellness or something that's that's in the brochure. But very few people take advantage of it. Um, and and so the answer to the question do these wellness programs work or is yes, if you do them right, if you mm-hmm. invest uh, the right amount of resources, if it's a strategic business decision, if you've got you know, the right people running the program. And also, obviously, if you measure and evaluate it along the way.
0: Right. Right. Um what are some of the reasons why such programs don't work?
1: Well, you know, some that we just mentioned, you know, poor design, uh-huh. uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, you've heard of programs that, uh, they have the only element of the program is the biggest loser contest right. where they put everybody on a scale and, and you've got to lose weight and, and people do it many, many times in a very unhealthy fashion, or they've got something that they, you know, that the health plan provides. So our, our health plan, you know, Blue Cross, Aetna, Care First, you know, Cigna and so forth, they've got a wellness program. Click on this site and you'll go there and you'll get everything you want. Mm-hmm. That's really not a, a good program. Uh, you've got things that are based on incentives only. And that potentially, again, may be very harmful where you're paying people right. to do things uh, to improve their health. And, and again, that they, from a person standpoint, uh, they're thinking, why, why am I being paid to be healthy. What's what's the ulterior motive here uh, that my company has? So there are lots of examples of things that employers uh, are doing that that are not sufficient, that they actually don't send the right message. Right. But, they, you know, so it includes poor design, poor execution, not enough resources, not the right people running it and not having the kind of organizational commitment that you need.
0: Um, I, I'd like to focus on workplace culture for a moment. I've read enough of your articles to know that you think highly about this as a fundamental foundation. What is the importance of a culture of well-being in a workplace?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because the word culture is used a lot. In fact, I was just at a meeting last week where again, culture kept coming up. So there are a lot of cultures in an organization. It's not just wellness, but it's a culture of safety, Mm -hmm. uh, culture of caring, uh, you know, one that uh, that favors, uh, th- that supports employee feedback and input. And I think it can be wrapped around this whole notion of culture, of kind of how you feel when you go to work every day. Do you feel intimidated, like the boss is breathing down your neck, there are demands, you don't have a whole lot of opportunity for decision latitude, uh, the workplace itself, the design, the architecture is not very conducive to Uh, to high performance. Uh, People are are grumpy all day. I mean, there are all kinds of elements of culture that matter. Mm -hmm. And what a a health promotion or wellness culture does is essentially brings those things to the surface and says, you know, here are the things that are going on here that are not actually conducive to good health and well-being. You know, obvious examples are the cafeteria, you know, just has junk food. The vending machines have junk food. Uh, you don't, you know, your your time off is in 10-minute increments. Uh, you don't have opportunities, physical activity. The lighting is poor. There's no nature in the workplace. Uh, your boss is demanding you to work weekends. I mean, those are all examples of culture. So you can't actually point a figure on any one thing. It's really something that you feel when you're at work.
0: Yeah, I, sometimes I look at this and it, it, it almost suggests to me that CEOs and C-suite and the people that run organizations really, it's, it's about caring for their employees. I believe you wrote about treating them like an extended family. And that, mm-hmm. that would be a good start for a culture of well-being, wouldn't it?
1: It would. In fact, some of the uh, cultures that I've, I've been at that uh, really, you feel it as the minute you walk in, Uh, including a company I visited last week's umbrella, Uh, many of them are family-owned companies. They're Mm -hmm. not traded on the stock market, they're not these quarter-by-quarter demands for dividends uh, by external stockholders, but it is a sense of we're all family, that we're in it together, that we care about each other, we all share in the success of the business, and that may be in the form of uh, employee stock ownership plans or pension plans, and other benefits uh, that are obvious to people who work there, and, and in many cases, there's a long waiting line for people trying to get jobs at those companies uh, because they're they're so highly uh, preferred in the community. Right. Uh, you know, one one company in New York that uh, we have talked about a lot is Next Jump, which is uh, 200 software engineers, e-commerce company. And you know, so they get applications from the most prestigious engineering schools in the country for only a few openings every year. And and people never leave. They don't want to leave. And and even in, in you know, there's actually a no fire policy as well. Uh, and so people love their work because they love what they do, not just from the business standpoint, but also the, the companion standpoint mm-hmm. and, and the people running the company.
0: Yeah, and if you can create a culture of well being that makes The default being that we take care of ourselves and we take care of each other and we want to facilitate uh, healthy lifestyles and uh, both physical and mental well-being, that's a pretty good platform for then putting in programs, right?
1: (laughs) It is, you know, but you know we shouldn't lose sight of we're not in the nonprofit uh, world. We are in the for-profit world, and companies still need to make money and they need to be successful. They need to be creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they need to get people to do stuff uh, that's going to provide value. Yep. Uh, actually, and, Google and, and, is, is one example where I think like each employee brings in one and a half million dollars in revenue, which is remarkable. But that's the expectation, right?
0: Yes, and you know if you have. Uh, healthier, more engaged, more productive workers—you should be able to make more money, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, because it's obviously, if people come to work and they're excited about their work, sure. they're gonna—they're gonna be focused on what it is that that uh, you know, the purpose of the company, which hopefully is aligned with their purpose. But if they're coming to work and they're feeling miserable for a whole variety of of either physical or emotional problems they're not going to be producing a whole lot for for you or for them, and uh, that's probably not a good place to be.
0: I would think so. Uh, You've co-authored several articles that tell us that companies with the most effective workplace programs generally experience superior financial performance, right? Tell us a little about your findings there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the origin of these kinds of studies came from uh, Ray Fabius, who's a physician, uh, in fact, I was on the phone with him today, but he, he mm-hmm. published a paper a few years ago. I think it was 2013 in Journal of Occupation Environmental Medicine, and he looked at companies that won the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine uh, Culture Award. Essentially, these are, uh, uh, these are uh, awards given to companies that have excellent health promotion and safety programs and found that they outperformed the S&P 500 which then inspired actually three studies that were published uh, in, in in JOEM last year uh, that looked at this from three different angles. Our study focused on winners of the C. Everett Coop Award, which is an award that's been going on for 20 years now mm-hmm. uh, that recognizes companies that have great data on their programs, but also data showing that their programs have improved health and saved money. And so we put a portfolio together of 26 companies, publicly traded companies, and followed their track, their stock trends, from 2001 through 2014 and found that this portfolio, this kind of a little mutual fund, outperformed the S&P by about 3 to 1. You would would have uh, earned a 325% return on your investment had you put your money on these companies versus about 105% return on investment on the S&P 500.
0: Which makes it all the more remarkable that uh, more companies are not proceeding down this path. Um, In what, in your opinion, is the importance of CEO leadership in this area?
1: Well, it's got to it's got to come from the top. Uh, I mean, unless the CEO buys into this as a way of being and something that influences the culture in a very positive manner, it's not going to happen. You know, Uh, and employees are going to go to other companies where CEOs do see that. And uh, you're certainly experiencing that now with the millennial population, Working for a cause or a purpose, not just to earn a paycheck. yep and so, so unless that's uh, that's communicated uh, vividly by the CEO and C-suite and middle managers, the supervisors, then these programs are not going to survive.
0: And of course, uh, middle and frontline managers, they're they without their support, things generally die on the vine. Uh, I, I know that having been a CEO myself and getting them, to uh, pick up the baton here is, is pretty tough, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah, because they've got schedules and they've got outputs and they've got product and stuff that they need to get out. And, you know, the traditional way of doing that is just, you know, uh, haranguing people and yelling at them and, you know, and, and telling them they got to get stuff done. But that's old school, essentially. Uh, people have have got to be engaged and involved in decision-making on how to get the work done. And if you include them in that process, you're going to be a lot more efficient.
0: It almost seems like uh, the first thing to start to create a culture of well-being is to make sure that somehow, some way, you don't have jerks as managers. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's, it's tough, but uh, you see all the data that says the, the single most important relationship that a worker has at work is with their immediate superior.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and so you know there there are dozens of books written out there about what it takes to be a good leader, and um, you know certainly if you make clear expectations, if you provide the resources, you give people bandwidth and an opportunity to grow and expand, and you support them in their advancement within the organization, and get out of the way so that you don't introduce obstacles to they're getting the work done. That's that's a very supportive leadership, and that's going to uh, result in in higher performance and higher productivity. Sure.
0: As as you know, I'm writing a book which I will title "Returns on Well-Being," and it will make many of the points we've discussed today. Uh, what I really hope is to connect with CEOs and boards of directors to help them understand the importance of employee well-being and how to achieve it. Uh, are are you optimistic that eventually employers will get workplace well-being right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly, I I see a progression in in, in that direction. And, uh, again, I think as the younger generations, uh, they're now the majority of the workforce. That's what they're demanding. That's what mm-hmm. they want. They they don't want to work for uh, you know, the nine-to-five, uh, no-nonsense, no-meaning company. They want purpose in their life. They want to uh, align what they're doing personally to what the company's doing. And the CEOs that get that are going to be the ones that are successful. They're going to be listed on the top companies uh, in America to work for, Glassdoor preferred uh, employers. And that's where uh, people are looking. You know, I've got a job offer from this company. Uh, How does it rate? What do people think about it? And that's going to matter a lot.
0: Well, I hope CEOs and boards of directors and C-suites have listened to what you said, because I think you've made a lot of sense. That concludes our uh, interview for today. Ron, thank you very much for participating. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible Returns on Wellbeing.